Well, I still remember the very first time that I set eyes on her. She was sitting quite forlorn, really, in the forecourt of a used car garage. She was a BMW 3 Series. <laughs> M3 Sports model, nonetheless. And 04 plate, which, by the way, if you're looking for a word to define it, you could use words like classic, but glorious will do, okay? She wasn't by far, she was not the cleanest car in the forecourt, it has to be said. Uh, she definitely did not have the lowest mileage. She definitely had the worst bodywork in the entire forecourt, but I loved her. Many couldn't understand why, including my wife, why I would buy a car like that. They just saw the rusty wheel arches on the exterior or the torn fabric in the interior. And even though she was basically made ugly by these uh, failures, I loved that she was mine. I absolutely, I, drew, I got into her every day with a smile on my face and I pretty much giggled every time I drove her. It was a joy. Now, she then, I know she's a car, but bear with me, it's an illustration. I'm not going crazy, right? Uh, she enjoyed the benefit of being mine. If she had a mouth, she would thank me. Because I blessed her, I gave her things that beautified her. You know, little by little, bit by bit, trying to help her be just like her maker, Volkswagen. Eh, Volkswagen, what did I just say? BMW. Oh. Made her to be. But I also fixed her because I also saw her faults. I removed the balding tires, because they were really quite dangerous. Uh, I gave her new ones. I fixed her leaky alloy and the floaty steering. That was fun on the motorway. And then I treated the exterior rust, and then, then I would retreat the exterior rust. But why am I going on about my favorite car? Here's why. It actually reminds me of what God has been doing and is doing in Jacob's life as we've studied his life in Genesis. In the eyes of many, he would not have been the first choice for carrying on this phenomenal blessing to bless the nations through his line to the point that Moses, David, Messiah, Jesus Christ would come from his bloodline. But God chose him. He wasn't a nice guy People wouldn't really understand why he's been chosen, but God knew what Jacob was like, and he knew, fine and well, that he was a piece of work. But when God chose him, he decided to make him a work in progress. One to bless. One to fix. And that is what we see God doing in Genesis 29. And that's what we can expect to see God doing in our lives too, blessing us, giving us things that we do not deserve, and fixing us, making us to be like our maker, the Lord. So let's have a look at Genesis 29. It'd be helpful if it's uh, open in front of you so you can follow along with me. Here's the story so far. God has called Abraham uh, and given him a blessing, a promise a lot of land and people and Abraham, of course, passed this blessing on to Isaac. And Isaac was expected to pass that on to Esau, the older brother. But Jacob conned his father and ripped the blessing from Esau's hand. So Jacob had wangled both birthright and blessing from that older brother. And now he's on the run because, as we saw in 27, chapter 27, verse 41, 
uh, Esau wants to kill him. He's basically waiting until his dad dies, and then he's going to go for it. But from what we saw last time, God has chosen to bless Jacob. He has appeared to him, as we saw in chapter 28, incredibly, graciously, in much the same way that he had appeared to and spoken to his dad and his granddad before him, confirming the blessing, which is basically promising descendants and promising God's presence. And I want to walk us through this passage tonight just in two points. One, God blesses those he loves despite their sinfulness. That's the first point. Look with me at verses 1 to 14. Here's where we see that Jacob does not deserve God's blessing. And let me give you two reasons why. First of all, the sins that he's committed. Okay, He actually shouldn't be anywhere near Haran, as you read of him being there. Chapter 24, earlier in Genesis, says so. But if verses 1 to 6 of chapter 29 are like, find my friends on your iPhone, it tells us that he is miles outside the promised land. The promised one, the chosen one, is not supposed to be outside the boundary, but he is. And we know why, as I've just said, because of the sins he's committed. Uh, and he is essentially reaping what he has sown. He's been a conniving, lying, selfish piece of work, stealing without conscience his brother's birthright to the double portion of the inheritance and that brother's blessing too. Esau's going to kill him. Now the bad things Jacob has done prove clearly and the ongoing sinful practice prove clearly that he does not deserve God's blessing. But so do the good things that he hasn't done. They also prove his undeservedness. Let me show you the things he has omitted. Verse 1 to 14. I don't know if you remember, it sounds an awful lot like chapter 24. The story of how a wife is found for Isaac, Jacob's dad. And uh, Andy Patterson preached on this a few weeks ago. In both accounts, you have wells, water, beautiful women, and Laban. And the similarities really demand some kind of com comparison uh, by us and Jacob. It has to be said, when you compare the two, does not look like the kind of man you want your daughters to marry, okay? First of all, chapter 24 is saturated with prayer. Requests are being made on the basis of God's character and of God's power. Show me who it is, tell me what to do, I'm relying on you kind of prayers. And then when that provision of Rebecca is found for Isaac, thanksgiving, praise God, he's got a wife, God is active in it all, sovereign in it all. And then you compare that to verses 2 to 12 of chapter 29, and you see the differences. Well, it's just very different. <laughs> in 2 to 8, he's hanging about, Jacob, by a well, talking to what are effectively some lazy shepherds, when in verse 9, the beautiful Rachel turns up. Now, he's like a guy who's been dossing about with his friends and suddenly sitting up straight and fixing his hair, putting on his schmolder when the, when the girl he likes walks in. That was not my schmolder, by the way. Um, just realized I was making faces at you. Um, verse 10 then tells us that he fawns over this girl. She has flocks to water. He sees an opportunity. He takes, it has to be said, 
the biggest possible risk for any man to take in a situation like this. He is going to put on a show of strength to try and move the stone that's over the well that effectively the shepherds have given you the clue that it takes more than two to move it. He's like, I can do this. And so he steps up. Now that is dangerous, right? I've seen grown men, strong men, humbled by a jam jar. But this guy is walking up to a huge stone, and this could end very badly. No prayer, by the way. And like some guy from the Diet Coke adverts, I, I imagine, stripping down to just his jeans and his six-pack, he dramatically you know, moves the stone, dusts off his hands, pulls the beauty queen close, kisses her, says, your dad's going to love me, and then even shows he's in touch with his emotional side and starts to cry. Where is the prayer? Where's the thanksgiving? This is not an example, by the way, of biblical masculinity. The sins he's committed outside the promised land. The things he's omitted as he looks for a wife. Show us that the blessings that he ended up receiving, a wife, children, prosperity, they are not given because Jacob was a good guy and earned them. Far from it. He is not in here to give us a moral example to follow. They're given. These gifts are given to him because God is good and gracious. They're given because God is faithful to those he calls his own. They're given because God is faithful to his promises. You see, Jacob is like my BMW 3 Series M Sport 04 plate. Not the cleanest, the newest, the nicest man in the world. Many can't understand why God would choose someone like him, but God did choose him despite being a piece of work and he loved him and chose to bless him with many things that he did not deserve. And guess what? Jesus Christ does exactly the same with pieces of work like me and pieces of work like you today. And aren't we glad he does? God has chosen to bless us despite who we were, can I say? As 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us, we were all pieces of work. We were all wrongdoers with no hope of being part of the kingdom of God. Wrongdoers, offensive in terms of the holiness of God. As 1 Corinthians 6 explains, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, and same-sex relationships, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, every single one of us, rusty, disintegrating in a state. And then Paul writes in verse 11 of that passage, and that is what some of you were. Where? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. How? Because of something you did? No, of course not. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it all hangs on him. And by the Spirit of God, it was done through him. He has chosen to bless us with a salvation that neither you nor I deserved. And he has chosen to keep on blessing us despite who we still are. 
despite the promises that we have made, despite the intentions that we have, as we fall, he catches us and he blesses us with blessings still. We sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And we'll sing it at the end. Prone to leave the God I love. It's true. But he's chosen to keep on blessing those who follow Christ, actually, with things that are very akin to the blessings that he promised Jacob. God's ever-presence and God's ceaseless blessing. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, said the Lord Jesus. There's his presence. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. There's the ceaseless blessing. If you don't know Jesus Christ to be the one who makes your current life a past life. And who blesses you with salvation, which means forgiveness from sin and new life in him. You need to talk to someone about this. You don't know what you're missing. You need someone to explain this to you. You are, in terms of your sin, worse than you have ever realized. But in terms of God's salvation, you are more loved than you even know. Talk to someone about it. Afterwards, there's a bunch of New Testaments down here. I'd love to give you one of these away for free just to have a look for yourself. And why not talk to someone who brought you or talk to me. I'll be sitting down here for a few minutes after the service. Ask us about this salvation that we might explain it to you. It is gloriously gracious of God to love us like this. And brothers and sisters, what difference does it make to us in the day-to-day things of the Christian life, knowing that God blesses us even when we don't deserve it? What does that say to us in our guilt and shame? when we feel wallowed into this kind of despondency where we can't even feel like we'd be bothered to get up and live for him that day. God is gracious to us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Well, God blesses people like us and like Jacob, as I've said, even when we're pieces of work, of course, we must not, though, think that his blessing indicates any kind of approval of the wrongdoing in our life. No, As I said, he takes pieces of work and makes them works in progress. And we see from the rest of this passage that he is as committed to fixing us as he is blessing us. And this is what we see in verses 15 to 30. That God disciplines those he loves dealing with their sinfulness. And that's point two. It's pretty clear from verses 15 to 30 that God is humbling Jacob in a very specific way. He gives him a taste of his own medicine. It's not hard to see, is it? He is absolutely played by Laban uh, for an absolute fool. It's, It's like the perfect hustle. George Clooney could not have done a better job with this. And there are, four, there are essentially four steps to it. I'm not, I'm not teaching this for didactic reasons. I don't want you to go and hustle people, okay? I'm just showing you the shape, okay? First of all, instill trust. This is what he does. He instills trust. Use affection if necessary, okay? 
Uncle Laban, we met him in chapter 24. Family, Jacob's probably thinking. My dad's always preferred my older brother for all of my life. Finally, a father figure, someone to love me. And then out comes Laban. By the way, from chapter 24, he's rushing out to kiss this boy, not because he loves him, because he's looking forward to some more loot. He was loaded after the last meeting with Isaac's servant. So he rushes out, my flesh and blood, he says to Jacob. He is playing him. Set the bait. That's the second step. Manipulate the target's emotions. Verse 15, Laban already has Jacob working him for him, we see there. And then, basically, he plans to enslave him for years. Probably because he's got the kind of strength that can muscle a wellstone off the top of a well. So he plays the family card again and offers him, you know, his his wildest dreams. What would you like? Tell me what you want from all I've got. So he's basically playing a benevolent uncle here. And we know what Jacob wants. His mother told him chapters ago, a daughter from her own family to be his wife. Oh, but which one? Verse 16, look with me. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. So we know which one. Now, for Leah, it's weird, isn't it? We don't know what weak eyes mean. Some are like, oh, it's short-sighted or something like that. But we don't know. Actually, it can't be short-sighted because my wife's short-sighted and she chose me. But anyway, that's an aside. We don't even know what lovely figure means in here, by the way. That's the second point. In some cultures, uh, lovely figure is interpreted as supermodel skinny. But in others, it means a rounder figure. We just don't know. But whatever is going on, this we do know that whatever Jacob saw in Rachel, he loved. Okay? He loved. Now, some say only fools rush in. Uh, Well, Jacob does, actually. Seven years of free labor is slapped down on the table in front of Laban. And Laban is rubbing his hands. Because the usual dowry price for someone, if you didn't have enough money or camels, you know, to, to offer the future father-in-law, then you could offer yourself to work. And the usual dowry price was three years, but he's like, seven years. I'll give you seven years. Seven years. But to the loved-up Jacob, it seemed like, as verse 20 says, only a few days to him because of his love. Oh, Don't say all. Step three, create distraction and give nothing away. Now the time had come eventually and Laban is uh, holding this wedding feast. This is why you shouldn't say all by the way because Jacob is like, give me my wife. But the time has come and Laban holds a wedding feast. The town was all invited and Rachel was there. Think about this. In all the escapades that go on here, Rachel was there. Wine was there. Actually the Hebrew word for feast is effectively drink. There was drinking going on. Top up, Jacob. Welcome to the family. You can imagine the scene. Create distraction. Give nothing away. Step four, perform the switch. Covertly at the target's weakest moment. So, at the end of the night, after old Lang Syne and tying tin cans to the back of the chariot, we read, Laban took his daughter Leah, Leah, and brought her to Jacob And Jacob made love to her. 
How bizarre. Like, is, what is going on here? Is Leah, is Leah the victim of a cruel dad? Possibly. We're going to look at the following chapters next week, funnily enough, but I'm not sure those chapters necessarily present her as someone who's the victim. I'm still uncertain. I think we see next week that she herself loved Jacob and was so desperate for a husband, so desperate for love, that she could actually have been in on it. But we don't know. And Laban is there just laughing like some master villain, surely. (laughs) You know, he is rubbing his hands together because he snared the stupid nephew. And Jacob, how could, how could Jacob not know? You know, I get that it was dark and they didn't have lampposts. Like, how did he know? Tents, veils. Well, I guess he was so intoxicated. It was a masterpiece, though, of shameless betrayal where, don't miss this, Jacob is conned by his own con. Remember, he's conned by, it all sounds so familiar, doesn't it? To the way he hustled his father and his brother. He took advantage of his dad's blindness, even as he's, his blindness caused by drink. He fed his father food and drink and did the switcheroo on Isaac. He's been conned by his own con. It's almost delicious. And Jacob's response suggests that he does not like the taste of his own medicine, as his anger at Laban shows. Verse 25 says in the morning he rolls over, and the Hebrew actually reads, Look, she, Leah! (laughs) It's like that. It's so, it's crazy. But you imagine his face. You imagine Leah's. He is raging. Verse 25, what have you done to me, Laban? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban's response is perfect. It is not our custom here to give the younger before the older. Think about Jacob's life. Surely at that moment he realized the con. Hustled by his own hustle. He used a feast and blindness and goatskin to trick his dad into giving him the blessing. Pretty much the same things that Laban has used on him. Feast, blindness, a veil. Jacob has no right to call for justice here, by the way, without immediately condemning himself. No right to call for Laban to honor His, Jacob's right to Rachel, having taken Esau's right to rule, he has no answer except to do exactly as a humbled, convicted, empty-handed slave would do. Work for another seven years. You can imagine it, can't you? What have you done to me? You've hustled me. It's not right to give the younger before the older. That's what I did. It's priceless. 
What an experience for the one who has promised God's presence and blessing. 14 years, if not longer, of labor. Now, some might say it doesn't really look like God is blessing and being present now, does it? But I would say this looks exactly like God is present and blessing Jacob. Because when God humbles a piece of work like Jacob, or like you or me, it is still a blessing. He fixes us by disciplining us, like I did with the car. The leaky alloys won't do. You can't drive a BMW with a flat tire. Rust won't do. You're meant to look at her and see the designer's hand. Now, in the same way, God disciplines us for our good, and it too is a blessing. Hebrews 12 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son or daughter. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. This must have been painful for him. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those, not just who experience it, read the text. What does the text say? For those who have been trained by it. For those who've learned the lesson tied to the discipline. That's what Jacob needed if he was going to be the one through whom God would bring blessing to many nations. And that's what we need too. How can you tell? That's the obvious question, isn't it? How can you tell if you're being disciplined? How can you tell even if some kind of hardship that you're experiencing or even some cruelty you're receiving in some way? I mean, this is cruel here. How do we know what's, what's being permitted for our discipline? Well, actually, it's extremely difficult to tell. It's easy to tell when God's word convicts us of some wrongdoing or when a brother or sister in the church family who knows and loves us speaks kindly, gently, and lovingly to us to point something out by rebuke. We can know then that the Lord is disciplining us. He tells us that in scripture. And even when our conscience weighs heavily on us, we can know that we are being convicted And God is seeking to train us that we might share in his holiness. But most of the time, it's actually quite hard to tell. Hardships like Jacob's long-term labor here are used, though, by God to humble us. But knowing whether a hardship is a humbling from God, an arrow of Satan, a consequence of your sin, a consequence of someone else's sin, is really, really hard to discern. 
and guessing won't help. The Bible has way more to say about praying, enduring, and learning in the midst of it. And I wonder if that's what Jacob thought long and hard about over the following seven years of service. He still worked those seven years even though he received Rachel as his bride a week after receiving Leah as his first. That's not to say the Bible condones polygamy, by the way, far from it. We can talk about that next week. But still, having received Rachel, why not say, hey, let's do a runner? Or say, here's a knife, let's go kill your dad. Well, perhaps it was that he felt the weight of conviction for the way he had been living by the sins he had committed and even the things he had left omitted. It's easy to read this passage, isn't it, and think, this guy Jacob is an absolute joke. And you almost feel good that he feels bad. He gets his comeuppance, right? You know, we love this kind of thing. People love to write about it just now. People call it schadenfreude, which basically means damaged joy. You know, it's like the newspaper snapping a celebrity vegan in the cheese aisle. Or a thief snatching a bag only to knock himself out on the lamppost that he didn't see. You know, there's a bit of a <laughs> to it. There's a delicious kind of instant karma, which we don't believe in, to knock him, to, of seeing this piece of work conned by his own con. Until we realize, again, that we're all a piece of work, deserving punishment for wrongdoing, then we're not so quick to look for that kind of comeuppance because we know then we'll get ours which of course the Bible talks about, this day of judgment to come. When for those who have not hidden themselves in the righteousness of Christ, there will be public shame and just punishment for sin. But for those who humble themselves now under his welcoming grace and in his righteous robes, if you like, before God who is present to bless us with a love we don't deserve, but chooses to because he's love, we experience blessing. Blessing that comes by God being gracious to us. And blessing that comes by God fixing us through discipline. Are you open to that? Can you trust God in that? As a church family, let's encourage each other to do just.